We are in James, the epistle of James, and we are going to pick up in, start, we're going to start reading again from verse 7. James 5, verse 7. I'm sorry, James chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured, You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Okay, so again, he's exhorting us to be patient. And he says in verse 8, You too, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. This near means imminent, means that it is destined to come doesn't mean that it's going to happen tomorrow, but it means that it definitely will happen. But there is again an imperative here. God commands us to be patient. He says, you too, be patient. God commands us to do that. And the amazing thing about God's commands is He gives us the grace to walk in those commands. Then He says, strengthen your hearts. Uh, I think, I think uh, the, the NIV says stand firm. But actually it gets back to this concept of strengthening one's heart. Uh, the King James also speaks of strengthening the heart, whereas the, the NIV translates it and changes it a bit by saying stand firm. But it talks about strengthening your hearts. There is a work that we have to do on our hearts by the grace of God to see that it's strengthened. And this is an important work. It is so easy in life to get flustered by the things that come at us. And in the context of the command to be patient, he says, I command you to be patient. Again, this is an imperative. He says, uh, uh, well, you can be patient if you want to. Here's a suggestion if you feel like following it. It's a command. It's not just merely any old suggestion. It's a command to be patient. But in the midst of that, he says, you need to have your hearts strengthened. The heart needs to be strengthened. That is really important. That the heart needs to be strengthened. You know, I've been meditating on this portion in Psalms. Turn to to the book of Psalms, chapter 19. And this this is the text that that we're memorizing now as a family. And in Psalm 19, there's this, this beautiful portion that talks about this same sort of thing. In Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. This book, these scriptures are absolutely perfect. There is no error in them. You know, there may be error in your science books, but there's no error here. 
The law of the Lord is absolutely and utterly perfect. And it will restore your soul. These scriptures can restore your soul. So what do you mean restore my soul? When we're all flustered and we're being tossed about, if we come before God and begin to meditate on this book, our souls can be restored. God can work in our lives and bring restoration to our souls. This is an important thing. If you get hold of this truth, God can do much with your heart. It says that He can restore your soul. Turn over just one page to Psalm 23. This beautiful psalm by David that we reflect on very often. It starts out, The Lord is my shepherd in Psalm 23. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Again, David knew of this concept of the soul's restoration, of restoring one's soul. This book, these scriptures, will be a restoration to our soul. If we obey these texts, our souls will be restored. And you don't have to be tossed about, because life can change on a dime. I mean, there are things that can happen that life can throw at you, that can change things all of a sudden. But this book will restore your soul. It will also keep you well. It will keep you in the right course. You know, I've been meditating also this week on this beautiful portion from Proverbs 28. Turn over just to the next book after Psalm. Psalm the book of Psalms is the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs 28, beautiful portion. Proverbs 28, verse 14. It says, How blessed is the man who fears always. How blessed is the man who fears always. The King James says, Happy is the man who feareth always. What do you mean that if I fear, I will be happy? If I fear God, I will be happy. I mean, so many people seeking happiness. And I've dealt with all sorts of people, very famous people. And you'd think that with all the fame they have and with all the money they have, they would be happy. But they're not. They're miserable. So happiness doesn't come by something that the world itself has to offer. The Bible says that happiness, that blessedness, comes by fearing God. By fearing God, there is blessedness. Let me read you a portion that, that, that uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote, expounding upon this little verse. Happiness, happy is the man that feareth always. Happy is he who feels a jealous fear of doing wrong. Holy fear looks not only before it leaps, but even before it moves. It is afraid of error, afraid of neglecting duty, afraid of committing sin. It fears ill, Ill company, loose talk, and questionable policy. This does not make a man wretched, but it brings him happiness. The watchful sentinel is happier than the soldier who sleeps at his post. He who foresees evil and escapes it is happier than he who walks carelessly on and is destroyed. Fear of God is a quiet grace 
which leads a man along a choice road, of which it is written, No lion shall be there, neither shall any ravenous beast go up thereon. Fear of the very appearance of evil is a purifying principle which enables a man, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to keep his garments unspotted from the world. In both senses, he that fears always is made happy. Solomon had tried both worldliness and holy fear. In one he found vanity, in the other happiness. Let us not repeat his trial, but abideth by his verdict. Solomon tried both. He tried everything that the world had to offer. You think some illicit relationship will make you happy? Many people do, who are married, think that if they had this other relationship, then they'd be happy. Well, if one makes you happy, so if you you get this illicit relationship, it makes you happy, then two should make you more happy. Then a thousand should make you very happy. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You'd think he'd be very, very happy. But you read the book of Ecclesiastes and you can tell that that was not written by a happy man. There was a time that he had a relationship that was very close to God. He was about 19 years old when he took the throne. And he cried out to God for wisdom. Because he said, I have been appointed to govern over a great people. And God in his grace said, you know, you could have asked me for all sorts of things but you've asked for wisdom, I will grant that to you. And wisdom like no other man has ever had. There was a closeness of relationship and a fear of God. But then when he tried filling it with the things of this world, the things that were not walking according to the fear of God, in came his cynicism and his depression. This is the same with us. You think that a little bit bit of disobedience you could just have this, this relationship, this particular thing in your life. Well, remember, happiness, happiness doesn't come that way. Happiness comes by fearing God, by fearing God and obeying His commandments. And real misery comes by desiring something that God doesn't want for us and getting that very thing. That brings tremendous misery into people's lives. I've seen it many times in young women in particular who have married unbelieving young men, thinking that this young man is particularly nice. And, you know, he's nice about it, he's gentle about it, and and it'll be all right. Well, it always ends in trouble. Always ends in misery for the young lady. I've seen it many times over. I've seen people who make compromises at work, thinking that this small little compromise won't matter won't do anything. But as believers, God holds us tremendously accountable. Unbelievers can do many things and they seemingly, there isn't much consequence at times. Jesus said, For he who is is given much, much is expected. As believers, the expectation upon us is much greater because He gives us the Holy Spirit The expectation is greater. If we mess around with the things of the world, the things that come upon us can be tremendously harmful. This is why, you know, I I particularly am moved by what 
Charles Spurgeon wrote. He said, it is afraid of error, afraid of neglecting duty. You know, may God move upon our hearts that we're afraid of neglecting duty. Do you have a duty in the Lord's service? Are you in charge of something in some campus group or in some church activity? If you neglect that duty, there should be holy fear because God has given us opportunity and He's given us gifts. We should fear not using those. When Jesus gave the three men talents, He gave one five, one three, and another one talent. And the one that buried his talent in the ground and didn't use it, Jesus didn't say, oh well... You know, it's too bad you didn't use it. You know, it would have been nice if you had because then you'd have two at the end of the day. No, he said, take that man and throw him into outer darkness, into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what he said of that man. And that's the Lord. That's Jesus who loved the little children said that. Those are pretty tough words. These scriptures can restore your soul. These scriptures can cause you to strengthen your hearts. God says very specifically that we are to strengthen our hearts. Well, how do we do that? These commandments, we walk according to these commandments and we are blessed. We are tremendously blessed. I'll tell you another one that I have often meditated on and I've told you before. It says of men, it says to men, it warns them, The mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. Those who fall into it are cursed of the Lord. Does that bring fear to your heart? Does it bring fear? It ought to. I don't want to be cursed of the Lord. I don't want to be cursed of the Lord. It would do Christian men well to memorize that verse. Those who fall into it are cursed of the Lord. These things are tremendous that God has for us because happiness comes by walking in His way. Blessedness comes by walking in His way. And this is why He tells us, be sure to strengthen your hearts. This is what He commands us to do, to strengthen your hearts. He says, be patient, there's a command. And He says, in your patience, I want your heart strengthened. So let's turn back to the book of James, the epistle of James. James chapter Verse 8, you are, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Verse 9, James 5, 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one, another, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So he tells us not to complain against one another. He says, don't complain, brethren. Again, brethren presupposes that he is speaking to believers. What the world does is something different. There are warnings for the world, plenty of them. There are warnings for the world even in this book. But most of the context of this book, except the the first few verses in chapter 5, he is speaking to the believers. And here again, he underscores brethren. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Remember, in the same way that we judge another... The scriptures say, we ourselves shall be judged. In the same way that you judge another, you yourself will be judged. And I don't want judgment. I want mercy. 
So if I want judgment to fall upon my brother for something that he has done, I shall so too be judged. But if I cry out for mercy to fall upon my brother, I too will receive mercy. We receive back the same way that we give. The same way that we give, we receive back. Turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Again, we had looked at this prior to this. Same context, same sort of idea. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Do not judge, Luke 6, 37. Let, let, let me start at verse 36. Luke 6, 36. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. By what standard of measure? By the standard of measure of mercy and pardoning versus judgment. And in fact, remember, whatever we sow a little bit of, we get back many times over the principle of sowing and reaping. You sow a little bit of mercy, you will receive much mercy back. You sow a little bit of pardoning, you will receive a, little, uh, a lot of pardoning back. You sow a little bit of judgment, you will receive a lot of judgment back. You see how the Lord is moving us again and again to higher ground. Then he says, stop complaining against one another. There's a, there's a, a beautiful passage in, in, the same, in the same book, in, in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, let's read from verse 36. Jesus tells a parable. Luke seven thirty-six. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Okay, so... A Pharisee came to Jesus and asked Jesus to come to his home for lunch. And you know what Jesus did? He went. He went. He went and he brought all his disciples and he used it as a moment of teaching. So this Pharisee invites Jesus over and Jesus went. Verse 37. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one owned 500 denarii, one owed and the other 50. And they were unable to repay. He graciously forgave them both. So which of them would love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. 
Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Those, then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Go in faith. Go, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me bring this to something practical, okay? So that we can look at it. Because whenever anything is afar off and we see it in somebody else's life, I don't think the impact is driven home. You know, we, we invite people all the time over for lunch to our home. And sometimes people come that aren't easily lovable. They don't have the sweetest attitudes. Or they're, they're not as clean-shaven or as proper or as intelligent as the rest. And some people have asked me, you, you know, we feel funny with this person here. And my only reply is, this person can continue to come. There's no way I can exclude people. Because look what happened. Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus. This woman who is a sinner, an immoral woman, comes. She, because she hears that Jesus is going to be at that house. So I'm sure she wasn't invited. Maybe she, maybe she had you know, gone to the Pharisee's house before to deal with the Pharisee when he had called her. I don't know. But she heard that he was at that house. She went to that house, I'm sure totally uninvited. She went in in the crowd. And Jesus reclining at the table so they would kind of lie down, go up on one arm with a pillow underneath them, eat at the table. She's at his feet and it says behind him at his feet. She didn't even have the enough to come in front of him at his feet, behind him at his feet, and is wiping his feet with her hair and, 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 and wetting them with her tears. And she says to him, she says, uh, uh, it, it says in verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he never said it out loud, it was just in his own mind, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner, that she is an immoral woman. So in other words, he's rationalizing in his own mind. If he knew what I know about this woman, he wouldn't allow this. So certainly, if he were a prophet, he would know. And since he doesn't know, he's not a prophet because he has no idea the kind of woman that's touching him. Well, Jesus well knew what this woman's occupation was. He knew it very well. And remember, the, the Pharisee said nothing. He had just said this to himself. God knows even our thoughts. We don't even have to voice it. God knows our thoughts. And the reason I bring this home in this way is because I want us to see how wicked our own thoughts are. That somehow I'm better than this individual. Because I know how to maintain a conversation. Because I know how to answer more correctly. God knows. God knows our hearts. And God is saying, remember the sinner woman. Remember the immoral woman. And remember Simon the Pharisee. And when I get in my own mind that somehow I'm better than somebody else, or somehow this person is good and this person is not as good, you know what God says to me? Simon, 
I have something to say to you. God reminds me of this very passage. Because you know what I'm really like inside? I'm really like Simon the Pharisee. Wanting to make distinctions based on people and how clean they are. And how well they can speak. And how intelligent they are. And how polite they are. And Jesus reminds me, Simon, I have something to tell you. And I'm put to shame. Jesus has always stood for the underdog. Always. Again and again, He stands for the underdog. He stands for the outcast of the world. He does that again and again. Jesus does that. And that's why He tells us in James, James tells us, would you quit complaining against one another? Quit your complaining. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. It's not our place. Jesus will do the judging. I've had people counsel me. Well, you know, you shouldn't let such and such people in to your home. It might be dangerous to the people. I said, in in what way is it dangerous? I've never seen them come into my home, you know, with a gun strapped to their side or trench coat with a shotgun underneath. You know, in that case, you you, you take certain precautions. But it's just just a kid. Just a kid. He's not carrying a gun. He doesn't come walking in with a butcher knife. Remember, Jesus said, stop complaining against one another. Remember, Jesus turns to this woman and He says of her, your sins are forgiven. Then He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He never said that to Simon or any of the other Pharisee Pharisee guests. Never, to any of them. But to this woman... He says, your faith has saved you. It was a traditional thing in those days for when a person comes to your home to wash their feet because they just are walking in sandals, to anoint them with oil, to give them a kiss on the cheek. It was a traditional thing. So Simon didn't even extend that to Jesus. And Jesus pointed it out. That you never extended that to me, but look at what this woman is doing. She has given, been forgiven much and she loves much. And we can understand this concept. Say, you, say somebody paid your college education for you. Paid $100,000 and got you through school. And then once you got through school, they said, just forget about it. It's okay. And then your roommate owes you a dollar. And, or you owe your roommate, I'm sorry, you owe your roommate a dollar. And he says, don't worry about it. It's all right. I mean, you're going to think a lot more of the guy that, that, that forgave you a debt of $100,000 than your roommate who forgives you a debt of a dollar. So we understand that concept, that he who has been forgiven much loves much. So Jesus put it in the terms of money, because we all understand the terms of money. We understand money, you know, this sort of thing. This is why he says to us, Don't complain, because again and again, Jesus is for the underdog. All the time. This is who He stands for. This is what He does. But you know, He does the same for us. Somehow we think that that after we've been in this for a while, we somehow deserve all of this. Look in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. 
God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you know why you are here? Do you know why you are saved? Because you're the foolish of the world. That's what it says. We are here. God, consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Among believers, there are not many with inherent wisdom or inherent nobility. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. That's who we are. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, to shame the wise. God has chosen the, the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. You think you're strong? No, you're weak. God has chosen us because we're weak, because He wants to confound the wise. He wants to put the world to shame through us. He again and again chooses the underdog. He chooses specifically the ones that the world doesn't value much. He chooses. This is what He does. He chooses it, He says, to shame the things that are strong. He has chosen the base things of the world. That means basement down, low, the base things of the world. The despised God has chosen. The despised. I mean, some of us, if we really reflect on this, before we were believers, we'll remember this. The pain, and even when we're believers, the pain that can come when we're despised by others. There's somebody, you know, you're in a group, and you know, the, the leader of that group, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, the leader of that group or the, you know, certainly the one that people look to in that group just kind of looks at you and just says, just walks away. You know, the pain you feel. I don't know if you've ever felt that pain of exclusion. God sees that. You know what He says? He turns to His angels and says, oh, you see that one that was just rejected? I want that one. That's the one I want. God's eye singles toward the one that was despised, the one that was forsaken. God wants that one. Do you see how gracious our God is? He's not chosen the wise. He's chosen the base things of the world and the despised. The things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are. God often takes the weak ones of the world, he calls them to Himself and He raises them up. I have seen this in my own life. I've seen this in the lives of many people that I have seen saved. Where He takes them, He calls them, and He raises them up. God does this again and again and again. You know, people think, oh, you must be you know, so smart, you do this, you do that. It's just the opposite. Of all the kids in my family, I was the weakest intellectually. I was the one that struggled the most academically. I never, never could have gotten through the admissions committee at Rice. Never. Nowhere close. 
I'm only fit to teach there. I never could have gotten through the admissions committee. What does God do? He raises us up. And I know what He did in my life. He raises us up in different ways. So I don't mean to project that He does this with everybody in the same way. But I was struggling with a course as a freshman. I was struggling with freshman chemistry. Struggling. I came to know the Lord November 7th of my freshman year. And I gave my heart and my life to Jesus and I started meditating on this book. And I got a B plus at the end of that first semester. And I got A's in every chemistry course that I ever took after that. And, and I took, as an undergraduate, every graduate organic chemistry course they had as well. God turned the whole thing around. He took from such weakness and made strength. He does this in our lives. God does this. This is why he says, stop complaining against one another because the person you're complaining about, I happen to really like. I really happen to like them. And the more you complain about them, the more I like them, actually. And he says, be careful. Because the judge is standing right at the door. And the same way that you judge another, you yourself will be judged. If you show this brother particular mercy, you're going to be dealt amazing mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word, for what you call us to. I pray for these young people. Father, I pray that you teach them to stand firm. Father, that they would renew their hearts the souls would be renewed, that the hearts would be strengthened, and they'd learn to do that by fearing You and obeying Your commandments. And Father, I pray that You teach us not to judge others or think ourselves better than others or think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Father, I pray for these young people that You work in their lives that they could be in a position to receive much mercy. And I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.